Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Good morning. Um, I'm really excited to share with you all a little bit about what Jesus has been teaching me uh, through John 13 specifically. Um, But before we dig into that, I just want to pray for our time together. Father God, just pray that um, you would be with all of us this morning, those who have made it here, those who are listening. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would edit my words to glorify God and that you would open the hearts of those hearing this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Pastor Ryan just mentioned, um, I'm sure at this point we're all painfully aware the last two years have been really crazy and very, very hard. In the wake of everything that's happened, we've seen people respond in a variety of ways. Christians have been no exception to this. People who claim to follow Jesus have responded in ways that honestly I personally struggle with. I haven't been sure how to respond to some of the things myself as a a Jesus follower. As a result, I've been really grappling very deeply with this question of how do you recognize a follower of Jesus? How are we supposed to recognize followers of Jesus? I want to invite you to think about that question with me this morning. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you probably have an answer to this question. So how do you recognize a follower of Jesus? Is it a theological belief? Maybe a particular rhythm of practices? Maybe a political stance? A series of prescribed behaviors? Or is it a confession of faith? Our answer to this question is so important. Thankfully, Jesus answers it in John 13, 34, and 35. Before we unpack that, though, I want to take a step back. I feel like sometimes we can unintentionally overcomplicate the way in which we're supposed to follow Jesus because of how we approach that question in the first place. So in thinking about that this week, I was reminded naturally of the Great British Bake Off. If you haven't seen the show, stick with me. It will make sense at the end, hopefully. So if you haven't seen the show, The Great British Bake Off is obviously in Britain, and so it's probably the kindest, most loving competition of baking and cooking you'll ever see. Um, They bring together 12 novice bakers uh, to compete against each other every week. And every week, they eliminate one baker at a time, and then there's a winner at the end. They eliminate the bakers through three challenges. So the first challenge is a signature challenge. This is where the bakers are asked to bring their tried and true recipes, really stay in their comfort zone, and give it their best, show their best. They have their recipes, they're well-practiced, and they they kind of all are asked to make the same thing. Maybe they're all, all making a pie or something, but they're different expressions of themselves. 
That's the signature challenge. The second challenge is the toughest challenge, I think, which is a technical challenge. This is where they come in, they have no idea what they're baking. They barely have a recipe. It's a little bit of a scavenger hunt, trying to figure out what the ingredients are even supposed to be, how many, what are the bake times. They sometimes don't even know what the product is supposed to be at the end. Maybe they haven't tasted it, and maybe they've never even seen it before. And so in this case, they're being asked to use instinct and intuition to basically guess to see what they can make. And at the end, they're all supposed to be identical, and they never are. And the last is the showstopper. The showstopper is when they're asked to bring all of their skills and experience to the table and then stretch it just a little bit further. So the judges are really looking for them to maybe try new techniques, work with different ingredients, put new flavors together. They still get a practice, but they still make a lot of mistakes because they're really stretching themselves beyond what they thought they could do as bakers. So when I think about these challenges, I think they're really illustrative of the different ways in which we can follow Jesus. We can approach it like a signature challenge and stay in our comfort zone. We can approach it like a technical challenge and cling tightly to what we think might be the rules of the game. Or we can approach it like a showstopper and simply bring ourselves to be stretched as uncomfortable and scary as that might be. Jesus is not asking for our greatest hits. That's the signature challenge. He's not asking for our best guess. That's the technical challenge. Jesus is asking us to bring all of who we are to the table so that he can stretch us just a little bit further. He's asking for us to step out into the unknown, to be uncomfortable, and to be willing to make mistakes. He's asking us to be a showstopper. So with that in mind, I wanna to turn to John 13, 34, to see how Jesus answers this question of how do we recognize a follower of Jesus? If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 13, 35 now. If not, you can simply listen along as I read. I'll meet you there in just a second. I just wanna give some context before we dig into this. So this is the night before Jesus was crucified. He had just washed the disciples' feet, which was an incredible act of service. They had just had the Passover meal together, which we still remember to this day in communion. And they're lounging around Jesus and his disciples after their meal. Just a few verses before this, Judas had just left to betray Jesus. So a lot has happened. And Jesus is fully aware that these are the final few minutes that he has with the disciples in this environment before he is going to be arrested and crucified. So the words we're about to read are some of Jesus' final words to the disciples. If you've ever had or maybe witnessed a near-death experience or even seen like a good film or TV show with a moment like this, you know that nothing snaps what matters most into focus more than knowing the end may be near. Jesus knew what was coming. And, there were, and these were the words that he chose to speak in that moment. So with that in mind, allow these words from Jesus to soak in for a moment. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So on the surface, this seems simple enough. Jesus 
gives the disciples this command to love one another. But notice how he immediately qualifies it with, just as I have loved you. This then begs the question, how has Jesus loved us? Thankfully, John kind of responds to this in his other letter, 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We also should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So Jesus laid down his life for us. He sacrificed himself for us. And he loves us with sacrificial type of love. This type of love is unique. The English language doesn't really capture the variety of ways in which we can love as humans. We have exactly the one word, love. So you can love your grandparents, you can love music, you can love tacos, you can love Jesus. The truth is, hopefully, the way in which you love all of these things is fundamentally different. Hopefully you don't love your grandparents the same that you love tacos, and you don't love Jesus the same that you love music. Sacrificial love is a particular form of love. In the original Greek language, which is what John was writing in, he uses the word agape. So agape is meant to capture this transcendent other kind of love. It's other-centered. What I think is interesting about this is that this type of love is unique to Christianity. It's unique to Jesus followers. Scholars, Christian and not, agree on this point. In this context, Jesus is specifically talking to the disciples, which leads us to the same conclusion. It's, this is a command for Jesus followers. He is asking us to follow him with this agape kind of love. He is asking us to love one another. So how did Jesus show agape? How did he show sacrificial love in his life? Well, Jesus chose to become human, so he was fully God. He literally could speak us into existence with a word, and he gave up his whole way of being to also become human. He chose to be gentle and patient with sinners, even though he probably felt an immense amount of righteous, righteous anger against their sins. He chose to serve the marginalized and ostracized in his culture, including women and children. Jesus chose to give his time to feed people, teach people, pray for people, even when it was inconvenient, required him to slow down, or completely interrupted his day. And probably most obviously, Jesus sacrificed himself fully and completely for our sins. In doing this, he also sacrificed the eternal connection that he had with the Father himself. The very anticipation of this sacrifice was so unbearable for, for Jesus that he literally sweat blood in anguish. But Jesus chose to love. He chose agape. He chose sacrifice. And he asks those of us who follow him to do the same. I do want to pause here for a second and make an observation about Jesus' example of agape. Sacrificial love is not abusive, it's not harmful, and it's not unhealthy. 
It is freely given out of our overflow of our love for God. So it cannot be taken or forced. It is a transcendent, other-centered love given freely out of our overflow of our love for God. Now here's something else I find interesting about Jesus's command. Why does he refer to this as a new command? This certainly is not the first time people have been told to love one another. Furthermore, of all the biblical commands, why does Jesus choose this one here at the end of his earthly ministry? Think about it. There's 613 Old Testament commandments. Jesus could have emphasized any one of them. But here, when the end is near, Jesus tells his disciples to love one another, and he calls it new. The problem is, it doesn't feel that much different from the commandments of the Old Testament. So in what sense is this new? The truth is, there's a lot of opinion about why it's called a new command, but there is agreement in that the newness of it is rooted in the fact that our love for one another should be as Jesus loved us, which roots our love in him, not in the commandments. Jesus ups the standard of love to one that is as sacrificial as his own. It is a love that stretches us beyond what we think we are capable of doing. It's a showstopper. And he goes even further to add that this love is what will mark us as his disciples. So here's what this means. According to Jesus, our love for one another is the primary metric by which we measure the maturity of our discipleship. Prayer matters, understanding scripture matters, commitment to a local church matters, ethical and moral living matters, even theology matters. But when Jesus forced ranks of what matters most, he says it's sacrificial love for one another. So this brings us to verse 35. Jesus goes on to say, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Feel the weight of this. Jesus says that our love for one another not only reflects our understanding of his love, but it also is the primary means by which he says we will be recognized as his followers. So let's do an honest and sobering assessment of that. How is Christian culture at large doing with that? Would you describe, would the world describe Christianity at large as being the most sacrificially loving community on the planet? Let's personalize this question. How am I doing with that? How are you doing with that? I know there's a lot of rhetoric around the political, social, spiritual, economic, educational, fill-in-the-blank divisions happening in our country right now. But the truth is, this is not new to the world, this is not new to history, and this is not new to humanity. It's also not new to me. I came to the truth of these verses when I got saved a decade or so ago. I was studying abroad in Northern Ireland as part of my undergraduate studies. If you don't know anything about Northern Ireland, historically they have been a deeply divided country. They were founded on segregation and division from day one. Even today, they still have peace walls segregating their communities. They're divided up as British Protestant 
and Irish Catholics. While these are Christian and religious identities, they're, they're more political identities. British Protestants want Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. Irish Catholics want Northern Ireland to be part of the Republic of Ireland. So they can't agree, and therefore they have these peace walls all over the country. They're concrete walls with fences stacked on top of them with steel stacked on top of that. Some of them go as tall as 100 feet. Families who live on the borders of these walls have to have cages over their backyards just to protect them from the petrol bombs or whatever else might get thrown over the wall that day. So these peace walls are reminding you daily of the division that exists in that country. I would walk along these walls as I worked with both communities. The thing that got me though wasn't the walls, it was the murals. Northern Ireland is known for these murals. Many are painted on the side of homes or businesses. So just imagine this. You're walking through a residential neighborhood, maybe your own neighborhood. There are kids playing outside, people going for jogs, people walking their dogs, and you see these plastered all around you. I couldn't ignore, though, the for God on many of these murals. That's the part that got me the most. I wasn't even a Christian at this time, but even I struggled with the idea that people who called themselves Christian were killing each other in the name of God. I kept asking myself, how can all these people who claim to love Jesus seek to kill one another in his name? By the grace of God, searching for, this question, searching for the answer to this question, in part, is actually how I got saved. That's a story for another day. But it's also why I feel so strongly that we have to be marked for, by our love for one another and not by our division. I felt so strongly about this that after becoming a Christian, I took the opportunity to return to Northern Ireland as part of their peace and reconciliation efforts there. I taught forgiveness education in their schools and with their families in the community. We literally taught agape. It's Christian. We taught agape. We taught the Bible in the schools. I'd like to think we had some effectiveness, but the truth is half the students didn't even show up to the last day of the curriculum because they were throwing petrol bombs at the other side. The thing is, they're marked by their division, not by their love. They have been so divided for so long that literally throwing bombs at each other is a normal childhood pastime. So again, we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing with this? Is Richline a community of followers marked by our sacrificial love for one another? Are we willing to be inconvenienced and interrupted for one another? Do we speak with compassion and grace, even on social media and in the comment section? Do we elevate the good of the whole over our own personal preferences? These questions matter because the big idea from Jesus's command is that Jesus wants his legacy to be our love for one another. Again, the timing of this command places so much weight on it. He summarizes all he's hoped for, all that he's taught in a single command, love one another as he has loved. His hope for every word he spoke every ailment he healed, and every person he delivered 
was that his followers would love one another as a result. Thus, our love for one another is our biggest witness and therefore our greatest responsibility. It is our showstopper. I've shared before, and Ryan just mentioned, that I'm a professor. Most of my colleagues are not Christian. Some of them are vehemently against Christianity. I have the unique opportunity to be friends with them and be trusted deeply by some of these people. And as a result, I've had uh, numerous conversations with them about Jesus, Christianity, the Bible, Christians. Here's what I find so heartbreaking. Even after they've worked through their ideological, philosophical, political arguments against Christians in the Bible, there's almost always one thing that's still left. They've seen the hypocrisy within the church, either directly or indirectly, specifically our lack of love for one another. And many of them have been hurt by it themselves. It shouldn't be like this. Even though Ridgeline can't change Christian culture at large, we can model a better way for those who God does put in our path. As we close, I wanna make one more observation about why Jesus chose to emphasize this command at this point. Could it be that the reason Jesus chose to remind the disciples of the importance of love yet again is because he knew that the hardest thing about following him might be the, be the reality of having to deal with one another. Because let's be honest, it's not easy. We all have different personalities, different opinions, different preferences, different convictions. Some of you might be like me and just weird. It can be so difficult to love one another sacrificially. And the past two years have made that painfully clear. Because of this, you and I def desperately need this reminder that the most significant thing we can do for our world, our country, and our neighbor is to love one another. It is a decision we must make every day. It is our showstopper. This is how we are recognized as followers of Jesus. The difficulty of living this out is in its simplicity. You're free to bring who you are, to make mistakes, to be stretched beyond what you think you're capable of being. But ultimately, this is what we are made to do. Demonstrate our love of Jesus through our love for one another. Jesus wants his legacy to be our love for one another. So let's pray and ask him to help us love well. Father God, I just pray that you would open our hearts to the small steps that we can take to love one another well. I pray that you would open our minds to areas that we have to grow. And I pray that in this process, you would give us all grace and patience with ourselves. I pray that you would continue to cultivate Ridgeline as a community and a witness in this valley of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.